This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera resident conductor and man of many former titles at L.A. Opera, Grant Gershon. He's conducting part of the run of Barry Kosky's production of Mozart's The Magic Flute. We'll talk about that, his history with L.A. Opera, his passion for conducting new operas, and even a little bit about his piano artistry. Every time I get together with you, Grant, I always am amazed at the many titles that you've had with this company over the years. <laughs> I, might, I might hold the record with L.A. Opera for the yeah. number of different titles. And your long history with this company, too. Um, take us back um, to the very beginning, just uh, sort of the, the Cliff's Notes version of your um, long and, and winding road through, uh, through this company. Well, it started for me in the fall of 1988. Um, and at that point, I was purely a pianist. Um, I had no aspirations towards conducting in the 80s, but uh, I got a call from Peter Hemmings. I was freelancing at the time in in L.A., and uh, he asked if I would consider joining the staff, uh, music staff of L.A. Opera. So I did. And uh, uh, so that first season, I was essentially the only pianist on staff for a whole crazy slate of productions, including Wozzeck with Simon Rattle conducting and the LA Philharmonic in the pit. So it was it was a great like opportunity to learn everything about opera very, very quickly. And so I was here. Um, first, it, I think the first title was Repetiteur, which is the fancy word for rehearsal pianist and coach. Uh, and then it became principal repetiteur. And then, then at a certain point, it became assistant conductor. But the the job description really hadn't changed. Uh, I was still coaching singers, uh, playing rehearsals. There started to be a little bit of backstage conducting, which is often something that music staff ends up doing if there's a uh, a banda that performs from backstage or if there are singers off stage. Um, so I started waving my arms around a little bit. But uh, then I basically got uh, an offer from Esapekka Salonen in the early 90s to be his assistant as he was coming into the L.A. Phil. So Esapekka became a mentor to me. I left L.A. Opera in 1994 and did all sorts of other things, uh, which is another story and probably another podcast. <laughs> but in, uh, in 2001, I came back to Los Angeles to be music director of the L.A. Master Chorale and then... In 2007, uh, James Conlon, who had just uh, finished his first season as music director of L.A. Opera, uh, reached out to me and invited me to come back to L.A. Opera um, uh, to basically be the director of the chorus and to be conducting productions as well. So I think at that point, uh, when I came back, the title was Associate Conductor. And then after a few years of that, uh, we changed the title to Resident Conductor. And again, the the job description really hasn't hadn't changed all that much. Um, I'm generally um, conducting at least one production per season. I'm preparing the chorus for um, for all of their duties and uh, and helping James in in other capacities around the house as well. Do you cover? Is that a resident conductor's job, or is there someone else who covers? 
Most of the time, there's somebody else that mm-hmm. covers. Um, occasionally, I'll cover, especially if there's a production where I'm taking over some performances, um, I'll end up being the, the cover conductor for the whole thing because it's just more efficient. And uh, and it's a great way for me to, to be around a production more and to get to know the cast better. It's one of the things, whenever I'm conducting a production, whether it's here or at other companies, I really love to be around the process from the beginning of the rehearsal process. Um, so all of the piano rehearsals with the singers in the room, the staging rehearsals, the initial music rehearsals. Uh, for me, it's just, it's a matter of, of uh, well, first off, it's a matter of, of getting the getting the music in my own body and under my skin. Uh, but it's also, you know, establishing the relationship with the singers and the trust that, that the cast has to have with the musical direction mm. of a production. That's interesting because you know, a lot of conductors will just sort of like sort of like drop in midway through the process, right? And sort of parachute in and, and take things over ha- yeah. after others have done a whole bunch of work in the beginning, right? Yeah. And and that's kind of a reality of the business. I mean, um just the way that uh that the way that conductors get scheduled, um, it often precludes them from being a part of the process from mm. the beginning. But, you know, most of the conductors that I know and especially of my generation, and I know James feels the same way, James Conlon as well, uh, feel that that ideally you really are there for the whole process. Uh, because it, it's interesting in, in staging rehearsals, for instance, you know, obviously the focus is on blocking and their rehearsals with piano up in a rehearsal room. But so many staging decisions are actually musical decisions as well. I mean, I don't think you can separate one from the other and if you're talking about character in an opera with uh with a director and a cast member i mean that as well that's that is that informs the music making and how you're going to shape a phrase and the tempo that you're going to take on on an aria or an ensemble or the way that it's going to flow um dramatically is uh is uh the same as how it's going to flow musically so i just love being part of that process mm-hmm. That's interesting to think about, too, because like musically, you may want to like push forward in a certain phrase. Right. And the stage director could say, well, no, she has to get from over on this side of the stage to the complete opposite side of the stage and spin around this you know, thing to yeah, get there. And that's so- right. That's right. And so collaboration is a big part of the equation, at least to me, uh, it is. And, you know, and it's not just, you know, the kind of those physical um considerations of of blocking and and movement but it's also you know sometimes uh for character and for for the process uh the the psychological and emotional journey of a character uh sometimes you know something simply needs more time to unfold uh uh realistically or in a in a way that that particular singer feels the reality of the situation and so those are the kind of of decisions where yes you want to take a little more time or actually or you know conversely you don't want to be hanging stuck in a certain you know uh in a certain emotional state when the character would obviously be moving forward and so mm-hmm. that's the music as well yeah yeah can you tell me do you remember uh what was your first uh operatic love what was the first opera that you just said oh man this is this is this is it i love this you know, I suppose it was La Boheme, like with so many people, and it was because my mom and dad. Uh, my mom was a was a pianist, and my dad was a music lover as well. Um, and they had a, we had a lot of records of 
piano music and and symphonic music and of course a lot of pop albums and stuff i think as i recall we only owned one opera and that was la boheme it was with sir thomas beecham conducting it was this legendary recording with uc Purling and victoria de los angeles and um and i just wore out the grooves on that you know four sides for for the four acts and you'd flip it over and and i i remember that i i particularly loved to listen to act one uh act two and the first 10 minutes of act four <laughs> like <laughs> when it got when it got tragic and and when mimi starts to cough a lot and and eventually die like i just like couldn't handle that <laughs> it was just way too much emotionally yeah that's interesting. Um, for me, uh, one of the first operas I ever saw, uh, well, the fir- the very first opera I saw was Flying Dutchman, weirdly enough. Wow. Um, okay. And so, you know, that was an experience. But the, I think it was the second one that I saw was Magic Flute, hmm. um, which is, of course, coming here to, to Los Angeles Opera. You're conducting some of the yeah. run. Um, and that opera, just the craziness of the story and the way that the music just like made sense underneath the ridiculousness of of that story i just thought that was such a cool combination yeah yeah you know magic flute is just it's such an interesting work and in so many ways and it's just so off the wall when you step back and really you know take a look at it you know i mean it's the most convoluted plot there's no way from the first 15 minutes of act one that you would have any idea where you're going to be halfway through act two it's just it's it's bonkers you know one of the things that i love about our production now the barry kosky production that that uh, that we've done a couple of times here and are, are bringing back uh is that he gets rid of the dialogue because to me that really is that is the the, the really awkward aspect of magic flute this the music that is so sublime and inventive and and you know it's it's this great combination of pop songs and the most you know exalted revelations of the human spirit and all of the farewells that happen through the course of it which of course knowing how little time mozart had left on earth it's really easy to read a lot into all of these these labels that that are so outsized to what the dramatic situation is. So you've got all of that, and then you've got this dialogue that's just horrible, and and <laughs> I mean it's just really cheesy and 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 um, difficult to deal with. And and you always have the question then, you know, do you do it in German? Um, because generally you're singing in German because it just sounds so much better. But but you know, is it more ridiculous to do this? These play these horrible dialogue scenes in German where nobody can understand it, uh, or is it you know, or do you translate it so that people can understand it and really appreciate how horrible it is? <laughs> so, the, so the Barry Kosky production, much like the the Peter Sellers production um, that I became familiar with uh, in the '90s at Kleinborn, uh, completely dispenses with the dialogue. And of course, the the solution to make it a silent film, I think, is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this production, what is it like to to conduct it? I guess you'll find out. But, yeah. you know, in your estimation, you know, with the heights of people up very high, um, p- popping out of doors, yeah. that sort of choreography, I, I imagine you're going to have to have to be looking in places maybe you haven't 
had to look before. Yeah, it well, it's true. The, rehearsing this production of Magic Flute is just is unlike anything else. I've been around the production now a couple of times, um, and you know, watching it from the the sidelines. And um, and the what's interesting is actually in the rehearsal room itself, they construct a mock-up of the screen. You know, the the big flat uh, flat wall that things are projected on uh, with the staircases behind. Um, and they have projectors and the the whole technical rig is set up in the rehearsal room because you know you simply the, so much of it is about the interaction of the of the singers with the animation mm-hmm. um the, and and it's so intricate and the timing is so critically important for the jokes to 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 land and and just for the for the the magic and the fun of it to happen um that you have to have all of that set up in, in the rehearsal room. And the rehearsal room is actually pitch dark, pitch black, um, with the projections. And um, so it's a process unlike any other, but it's only it's only by working all of that detail out in the rehearsal room that it, that, that it really pops on stage like it needs to. Yeah. I would imagine singers standing on those little platforms suspended very high above the stage, there's a certain amount of... Um, you know, you just gotta you gotta trust terror. that that you're I not gonna fall, is the right? Word. Yes, <laughs> absolutely sheer stark terror. I don't know how they do it, except that I mean, one of the secrets of the production is that the singers are generally strapped in. You know, oftentimes if people have seen the production, that the there's like a rotating platform that singers come in and out on. It's I don't know. It's I'm trying to remember. There was some well, it's a little a little bit like Laugh In, the show in the '60s, where the you know people would kind of pop in and out. So in this case, because they you know, they are quite high off of the stage at times, uh, they are literally strapped in and um, kind of like I mean literally like a straitjacket, full body, so they're not going anywhere. You know, even if they have a fear of heights or if they get a little dizzy or, you know, there's they're <laughs> the opera doesn't have, a, I think, a, a high enough insurance policy uh, <laughs> to cover us uh, otherwise. So you know, there's many, many steps of safety. That said, I still don't know if I could do it. I'm just yeah. acrophobic enough. <laughs> um, I've wandered up onto the set just to see what it would feel like. And it doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the the physical space that that you occupy when you're singing, you know, to to stay grounded to something that's that small and that exposed and that much up in the air, like that's one of the sort of unseen challenges of of singing in this production, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, some singers just, you know, utilize their body more than than others or in a more overt way. And for for those singers, it really is a challenge. You know, if you're a singer who naturally just kind of lunges into into a big phrase, um, you can't lunge. (laughs) That's a very bad idea. How do you deal with all of the symbolism and uh, the Masonic uh, codes that are written into this opera? Um, Obviously, that's not something that's in the forefront of many people's consciousness today. That said, knowing about it is endlessly fascinating. Um, From your standpoint, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, you have to make strong decisions with Magic Flute, and there's so many different ways to approach the piece, you know, to me, the the Masonic aspect of it really boils down to less about those specific rituals that were important to to Mozart and um, and to his to the 
the people that that he associated with in Vienna at the time. But it, it's more really about the underlying message of it, which in you know the late. 18th century was was really radical, um, and this message of universal brotherhood, which I think hopefully now we would expand to to humanity, kindredship. I think is a better word, uh, uh, but uh, but in any event, it's that's really what is underlying the message of magic flute, or at least one of the messages of magic flute. But I think that any director who's approaching the piece has to make the decision, you know, how far are we going to go in that direction? Because there's so many other aspects to the piece as well. And the the human relationships between Papageno and Tamino and between Tamino and, and Pamina, etc. Those, even though it's a fable and they're, they're kind of mythologized characters, um, the, the human relationships are so clear in the music. And Mozart imbues these characters with so much empathy and humanity so to me that's another aspect of the piece that you have to make real decisions about um, and then there's just the entertainment value of the piece and I think that's you know to me the Barry Kosky production I mean that's what has been such a breath of fresh air is magic flute it can be so weighted down with symbolism and instead he's he's gone for you know I think what was in some ways first and foremost in Mozart's mind, and certainly in Schikaneder, the creator and, and the librettist, um, and the first Papageno was was you know let's put on a show, let's you know this is you know we want to we want this to run like a Broadway show with hundreds of performances, um, and we want everybody every you know every facet of the community of Vienna and beyond to enjoy this, and uh, and so let's make it. It's like super entertaining and funny and and uh, and touching and and the music is just is over the top and uh, and so that's I mean to me that's what is so great about this production mm-hmm. is you know you just you can just sit back and and have a great time mm-hmm. and it's an opera that connects with so many people in so many different ways um, and just thinking about well the theater that it was written for. Schikaneder's Theater was the people's theater. This was not music for the aristocracy. This was not music for a select elite few. This was music for the people of Vienna. And just thinking about, you know, how we today now try to try to encourage that element of the operatic experiences. Like opera is for everyone. And LA Opera is a very open company about that. And this production really emphasizes, I think, that side of this piece, too. Yeah, I think this production has been, it's been great for LA Opera. And I think it's its one of the reasons why we've we have brought it back several times now. First off, it's just hugely popular. But it also, it, it does, I think, send that message that the artistic values uh, and the artistic standards are at the highest level. Um, musically, it's always uh, just extraordinary. Um, but at the same time, it's it's populist. It is accessible. Um, it's welcoming. It's, again, taking a, a piece like Magic Flute, which is so easy to canonize, um, and to to you know and to do the same with Mozart, and to to really show that it's and demonstrate that it's that it's music of the people that he was writing pop songs uh as well as as these brilliant beautiful ensembles and contratado pieces that everything it's like a whole world in this one piece yeah 
Uh, obviously, you, um, we, we've talked about your many hats that you wear and the different kinds of conducting that you do. What do you love most about conducting specifically opera? You know, the, I mean, to me, the, the best thing about conducting opera is the spontaneity and uh, the, the inherent chaos uh, in an opera performance, which is very different from most concert performances, because, you know, most of the time in a concert, people are able to focus, you know, uh, purely on the music making. Um, you know, folks are able to see the conductor and vice versa. And um, and they've got their music generally in front of their noses. <laughs> and, you know, there's the the number of variables has been cut down to, to very, very few. Um, whereas in opera, it's nothing but variables. You know, uh, um, the singers, of course, have have memorized everything. Uh, they're doing staging, which sometimes you know has them you know very far up, upstage, very far from the orchestra and the conductor. Sometimes looking in a different direction, the players in the pit can't always hear the singers very well. So they you know their natural ability to play ensemble and uh, and to to use their ears first and foremost sometimes is kind of compromised um, and then there's all the things that can go wrong in an opera <laughs> you know famously the you know the opening night of the first performance of la opera when the curtain didn't go up uh on hotel or it went up two inches and right. then got stuck you know it's all those things and i think you know i think james conlon talks about this a lot uh, a lot as well that you know it's it's just that rush of excitement that you simply don't have the same level of control that you do in a concert. But at the same time, everybody, you know, as a conductor, everybody is depending on you more so than generally in a concert where if the rehearsals have gone according to plan, you know, the conductor's role is really to just kind of guide things along and give little indications and, and kind of gauge, gauge and guide the emotional temperature of a performance where in opera i mean the, <laughs> you are you know you you definitely feel more valued <laughs> by the players and singers because <laughs> you're like the last firewall between you know a performance that is brilliant or something that just careens into a total train wreck <laughs> you know there's nothing in between where does the audience fit in um, in an opera performance? Obviously, with this production and this opera, um, you know, you're going to get a lot of laughs. I would imagine that energy would make its way into the pit. Yeah, you know, we really we, we feel the audience very clearly in any performance of, of any opera because the, the storytelling is so important. And, uh, and so you really feel that level of engagement of not just uh, not just with the music, but with the characters and and with all of the other elements, um, and particularly in a comedy, it's just it's so great to to have that immediate reaction, and you know, and where it's not necessarily tied to the super title, you know, because that's I mean I, that's one of the those you know those double edged swords of you know the, there's always this awkward thing that that can happen if you don't this is another subject i know but if you if you don't have somebody running super titles who is hugely sensitive to timing and uh and to the flow of the music and everything that that thing where you get the laugh uh from the audience like right before the line the line is given and so you see the you know the, the singers on the stage like looking at each other when they have to hold for a laugh for a line that hasn't actually happened. quite even occurred yeah it's <laughs> it's awkward um 
So yeah. so yeah. So when the when the staging and the music is what elicits the reaction, I think that's that's just extra satisfying. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the spontaneity and the heightened variables in opera performances, and I'm thinking of you've conducted a lot of new opera as yeah. well. Akhenaten here. Uh, yeah. recently and uh, of course the premiere of uh, john adams girls the golden west yeah um i would imagine that there are even more variables when it when it's new opera and um what what that's been like for you especially with girls of the golden west to to live with that production yeah. and and see see the music change and take it to different venues yeah i mean that really was a uh, and has been continues to be a really interesting process with girls of the golden west first off it, it's you know we had the most luxurious casting for that opera. And in many cases, it's a, it's a cast of seven. Uh, and in several cases, John Adams was writing for those particular voices that he knew from the, before he, you know, set pencil to paper that Julia Bullock, for instance, would be Dame Shirley and that Devon Tynes would be in his role. And so it's always just particularly satisfying to feel that, that singers are writing uh, writing music and portraying characters that were specifically tailored to them. And that's very old school. I mean, that's, of course, exactly how, you know, Verdi and, and Donizetti and Rossini and, and Mozart and, and uh, you know, most all of the great composers, I, uh, you know, they uh, almost always had the first cast in mind when they were writing. And then, when, and then you know, the flip side of that is if they write something and they see they see that it's not working for that particular singer well fine just rewrite it you know transpose a line or create another cadenza or whatnot and that's that's in essence what john did with girls of the golden west he was in the rehearsal room in san francisco for virtually every rehearsal every staging and music rehearsal Uh, and he'd go he'd go home at the the end of the day and and oftentimes the next day we'd come back with a with a little revision a word change um a slight different contour to to a vocal line that he thought would be more gratifying to the singers um and then after san francisco there was about a year and a half before we revisited the piece in amsterdam and uh and for that john uh uh rewrote a good portion of the first act of the opera and and again was responding to his own reactions to having sat in the theater for all eight performances in San Francisco and uh, and he had very clear uh, ideas about what was working and what wasn't working what what needed some refocusing and and how act one would set up act two and was that were they aligned well enough I think he felt that they weren't and so Mm. uh, again to me it's 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 what's really interesting about working with not only like a living composer but a composer who is very attuned to process which john famously is and of course with his co-conspirator peter, <laughs> uh, yeah. peter sellers yeah. uh and uh so yeah it was that that has and continues to be because i think the the pieces from what i understand from john undergoing some other some smaller revisions before the the next go-round yeah well, and your relationship with him has has it's been years and years and years, and even yeah. um, you know piano music that he wrote for you and and Gloria, right? Yeah, Hallelujah Junction. Yeah, Hallelujah Junction. Yeah, um, it's I have to say one of the joys of my life has been my relationship with John Adams and with Peter Sellers, and and it started right here 
at LA Opera in 1990 when Nixon in China came to LA and um, and I was one of the rehearsal pianists on it and then of course there were extensive keyboard parts in the pit and so I played those parts as well and and I got to know John and Peter really well through that process and then I basically got on the the Nixon and China bandwagon so the next performances after LA were in Paris and so they asked me to come to Paris and be a part of that and then we were in Germany a couple of times and uh, so it's been almost 30 years yeah. at this point and uh, and we've done so many pieces together John and I um, of course I was looking at the ceiling and then I saw the sky this uh, wacky amazing theater piece that John wrote in the mid 90s which uh, it's looking like we're we're going to uh, revisit at the May Festival in Cincinnati uh, this coming spring that was actually my first opportunity to conduct um, to conduct a, a full-length opera theater piece um, and uh, in 1995. And so, you know, John gave me that first opportunity. And um, and then, of course, Peter and I have done a gazillion things together since then. But it all started here um, on stage at the Dorothy Chandler in, in the fall of 1990. Amazing. Yeah. When's the last time you played the piano uh, in public and would... Would you like to do more of that ever, or are you happy waving your arms? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I do miss playing. Um, but my most recent playing was actually, uh, very recently, my wife, Alyssa Johnston, who, of course, is a fabulous uh, soprano, we put together a recital for Boston Court in Pasadena. And uh, it was it was really fun. It had been a long time since we had done a full recital together. And, uh, and you know, Alyssa and I have known each other a long time we've done a lot of music together and uh, so you know it like it's it's like being able to finish each other's sentences like married couples <laughs> do um except in a musical way to do a recital together and we were also able to to you know feature music from some of our friends like Vicky Ray and Chinnery Ung and and others and to explore some things that we had always wanted to do together some some of the um, songs from Messian's Harawi, for instance, and uh, so that was that was really fun. I do miss playing, but mm. I have to say, you know, the the great thing about conducting as opposed to playing is like nobody hears your wrong notes <laughs> when you're conducting it. <laughs> I think Thomas Beecham was the one that said the baton is always in C major, um, and uh, whereas you know at the piano it is true, you know, if your finger slips off of the key, it can be very very painful. <laughs> Well, we won't leave it in, in, that, uh, in that space, but uh, I do want to thank you for your time and uh, looking forward to Magic Flute and uh, everything else that you've got uh, on your typically busy calendar as we get the, these new seasons everywhere here started. Great, Brian, thanks. Yeah, it's going to be a great season at LA Opera. Grant Gershon is the resident conductor at LA Opera. He's conducting the December performances of Mozart's The Magic Flute, starring Susanna Markova, Bogdan Volkov, Joshua Weaker, Theo Hoffman, So Young Park, and Ildebrando D'Arcangelo. More information is available at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen.
If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.